Hello, I'm Marcus Brigstock and welcome to Breaking Good, the podcast rethinking separation and divorce, brought to you by Forsters. So, over the past few weeks we've covered the world of prenups, children and the law, no-fault divorce and litigation, and thanks to COVID, at least once an episode we find ourselves saying, well... That's what used to happen, but obviously not anymore. So this week, we thought we'd dedicate a whole episode to examining the specific obstacles that the pandemic is presenting families with children and, of course, advice as to how to get round them. As always, I'm joined by Joe Edwards. Hello, Joe. Hi there, Marcus. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm speaking to you from a uh, uh, an upstairs room in our house in Balham, and, uh, and it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I miss I miss being in a studio with you, but otherwise it's fine. How about yourself? Are you well? Yeah, me too. I'm really well. Likewise, crouched over a mic in my in my home in Brighton, uh, wishing and hoping we can all be together again fairly soon. But uh, no, really well. Um, lots going on with our clients with work at the moment, so so can't complain. So all very busy. And look, whoever those clients are, I just wish that you could see Joe's classy and may I say very well hung wallpaper uh, which is a mixture of what looks like um like beautiful sort of gray birds on leaves with plums I'm trying to set the scene for the listener and it clashes beautifully with my sofa before you say it and then slightly <laughs> to my left there's the world's biggest collection of friends dvds as well so oh quite, yes quite I a, can quite see a picture, that quite a picture here I can see that friends has been mentioned before and been made relevant and important to these podcasts which is a perfectly good moment to suggest if you haven't listened to the previous episodes you really should now absolutely this week we're also joined by Matthew Brunston Tully uh, who I'm going to call Matt instead of Matthew Brunston Tully. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello, Marcus. I'm well. Thank you. Where are you in the world? I'm currently in my upstairs spare bedroom in Harrow, uh, somewhere close to my virtual reality headset, where I've managed to get up to ranked second in the world <gasps> on table tennis. Have you really? <laughs> I did, yeah. You're second in the world? Well, I'm not now. I'm about 100 now. But I was oh, up I to second in the world back in, back in May. That's absolutely magnificent. And yeah. can I see, just again, to set the scene for listeners, a little bit of sports equipment in the background there? Yeah, there's a peloton. It's been, oh, I knew it yeah. was a peloton. You fell for it. So to give you a flavour, I've probably had more curries this week than I've used it. <laughs> I actually have um, a very similar setup for curry um, that people have for peloton. I have a sort of online guide who'll talk me through having several courses and keep me going when I start to flag. Anyway, enough scene setting. Um, COVID has radically changed many people's economic and work situation, which may impact their childcare arrangements. So let's start with this. What advice would you give separated families who are facing these new challenges? So I think if I may, the preface I was going to make right at the outset is obviously these regulations and the guidance change a lot, have changed a lot, and I fear may continue to change a lot. So whatever we say today um, is deliberately quite high level, and people need to check the particular rules in their area at any given time. So the legal caveat out of the way, let's move on to the actual advice. So in terms of advice for separated parents, and particularly those who can't agree, um, I think between Matt and I, we've seen quite a few disagreements, haven't we, Matt, um, over the past uh, few months arising as a result of the pandemic and all of the, the regulations which have come into force. 
sometimes those disagreements are about parents who are just embarking upon the separation process and they're thinking about what the arrangements might be. Sometimes they're parents who've already got child arrangements in place that may be thrown into disarray as a result of what's going on right now. And really the advice I give, and I'm interested to hear, Matt, how you've been advising your clients, is very much just to be to think about what the realities are on the ground. The main reality is the family court is incredibly stretched at the moment. So court should be an option of last resort in most cases. Equally, there are cases where people do need the court's input if there are welfare issues or if, as I've seen, one parent is depriving the other of any contact at all, then court may well be appropriate. So don't think that the family court is is not open for business. But really, in most cases, it's about being practical and trying to sort things out. So I always tell my clients, be child focused first and foremost. Kids are going through a really tough time, aren't they, at the moment? They're being deprived of school. They're not seeing their friends. They're sensing adult anxieties about what's going on in the world around them. The last thing they need right now is to suddenly be deprived of of a relationship with one parent. And then in terms of the conversations that parents might have, they need to be prepared to talk and they need to be prepared to listen and to understand the other parent's perspective. More than anything, try and ensure that there isn't a break in contact. Even if the arrangements aren't perfect, what's most important in most cases is that contact should continue. And first and foremost, please don't try to turn a crisis and the pandemic to your advantage. As I say, keep it focused on the kids. So that's That's particular advice to Tory donors uh, who might be listening. Don't turn this crisis to your advantage. Oh, sorry. No, that was that was about. No, sorry, it's more this about was, parenting. This was specifically about parenting, Mark. Because I, I, right. I, okay. I, 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 I won't be drawn into that conversation. I'll encourage Matt, Matt, and not, you are, not, Matt not to be either. You are right to resist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe. Matt, is that is that? Uh, I mean, obviously, that's sound advice as we've come to expect from Joe at this stage. But is that your experience that? that you're having to deal with people suddenly in changed circumstances trying to maybe revisit stuff that's been working for a while. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you're probably going to hear me say I agree with Joe quite a lot on this podcast. Oh, only because I, I, we I, all agree I, I pay Joe. him too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, I think the, the, the key message is be reasonable, you know, talk to your ex, work together, you know, use apps like My Family Wizard if you find it hard to communicate with your ex. Um, agree to see a mediator if you can't agree things, you know, with or without lawyers. What is, what's My Family Wizard? Uh, it's a co-parenting app. Basically, parents sign up to it and it gives them a forum within which they can speak to each other, communicate, but but do so in a way that makes them feel like there is somebody watching, so they perhaps yeah. moderate their approach. And it's got all sorts of tools. It, yeah. it was recommended to me actually by a judge in a case um, over mm-hmm. Christmas. And I think the, the courts are seeing it and other apps as, you know, innovative solutions for families who really find it hard to communicate with each other. I think we've got to remember, you know, that um, lots of the people who who come to us and who we help, you know, the whole reason that they're actually needing to see a lawyer is be- because they didn't have an open and honest relationship, you know, and that's why they separated. So I think 
you know, we've got to be realistic, but the most important thing you can do if you're a parent who's listening is be open and honest with your ex-partner about any things that might create risk or any things that might impact on the arrangements or whether you're wanting more time just for lockdown or whether you're trying to, you know, create a new status quo. There are, it's so important in these times to be open, honest, communicate well, and you'll probably find that whatever arrangements you come out with, um, whether in the longer term or for lockdown, that you know they're going to be better. Yeah, I mean it's sensitive stuff, isn't it? Obviously, in my own situation, you know, I'm I'm co-parenting with my ex-wife with the children, uh, moving between our houses, which we'll come on to the legalities of that in just a second. But there's uh, there were assumptions we made early on that were not right, which was that the children, both of them would move at the same time. But actually, you know, my kids are teenagers and that doesn't suit them that well. They need time apart from each other. So we've had to sort of change and be very nuanced about how we make all those sorts of arrangements. But let's let's just deal with the brass tacks of that. But no, but that's fantastic, though. That's how people should be. That's an example of how people should Oh, thank you, Matt. I give my ex-wife and my wife... Kudos. The bulk of the credit for things <laughs> running smoothly. <laughs> Uh, they have they have a, a WhatsApp group that I'm not part of. Uh, that's not true. Um, <laughs> so let's just deal with the with the basics of it. Can children of separated parents move between the two households during lockdown? I hope the answer is yes. The short answer is yes, but there was, albeit very short term, confusion about this when the regulations first came out about lockdown last March. Um, they didn't actually expressly deal with this, but to be fair, that was very very quickly picked up on and rectified. So short answer is yes. There was also some confusion about whether that only applies to existing arrangements, which again, I think the regulations do do refer to existing arrangements. But clearly, if you're in the throes of separating and you're only just sorting out your arrangements, fundamentally, it's going to be in a child's best interests to continue to be able to see both of their parents. So absolutely, a child can move between uh, two homes for the purposes of contact with Mm. parents. Now, of course, as with everything, there is some nuance to that. And um, I've had the odd case, for example, where one parent has genuinely um, had health difficulties, which have meant perhaps it's not safe for a child to be passing back and forth or to be passing back and forth frequently. So other arrangements have had to be made. I have had, dare I say, the odd case where I suspect that has been said but hasn't been correct, has been one of those examples of people trying to manipulate the situation. But very broadly speaking, again, at the highest level, yes, children can move between two households for the purposes of contact. Mm. And those, I mean, obviously those movements between households can be enormously complicated because sometimes there are other children who are part of one or other or both of those families who are not moving between the households. I mean, uh, again, um, our own experience has just been that we decided early on that honesty was really going to be you know, the only way we could get through this, we've been divorced for 10 years. So we're we're past any point where that honesty might be in any way problematic for us. But I can envisage a situation where having to be accountable to your ex-partner and say exactly where you've been in order for them to establish the safety of a bubble must be very challenging. Yeah, I think really, really difficult. I mean, you know, you're suddenly opening up your household and your movements to full view. I mean, for people who've been through a divorce process, they won't have had to have done that since they produced, you know, 12 months worth of bank statements showing everything that they'd spent money on 
perhaps 10 years ago. So it's a big challenge, um, but people have to do it. You know, most of the problems that we've found in cases are where somebody hasn't been open and honest. You know, I remember one case that we dealt with during lockdown, father was flying um, the child uh, on, a, on a private plane and wasn't telling us where he was going and made it really difficult for our client to work out what the risk assessment should be, you know, which country had he been to, um, had they landed, um, who had they mixed with, really, really tricky. So, mm. you know, open and on- honest dialogue is the most important thing. Yeah. You've just got to be sensible about it. You've got to put the safety of everybody involved first. I mean, if, for example, you're having to drive a long way, <laughs> you might want to test your vision. Marcus, let, let, let's not go there, Marcus. Really, really nice for a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First, <laughs> well, we're not allowed to anymore. This is a party political broadcast by the Marcus Brigstock party. <laughs> um, okay, back to, back to the more serious end of this. What can a person do at the moment if their ex is being obstructive about contact? For for lots of reasons, some of which may be may be valid. What can you do? Well, very good point, Marcus. That absolutely that there can be very valid reasons as we've touched upon already. So yes, it's right that there are some situations where people are trying to use the pandemic as a means of frustrating contact. Other cases, there are genuine reasons for contacts not happening or changing. And in other cases, it might just be about anxieties that once they're talked through and resolved, that then things can move on. So the starting point is discussion. We've said already, already either directly or through mediation, just trying to understand what the blockers are, what the anxieties are. Can they be fixed? Is it unfounded? Is it genuine concern? Is it something else? Um, If one really can't get to a point of having a satisfactory amount of contact or indeed any contact at all, um, or indeed that there are any welfare concerns, then it may be necessary uh, to think about issuing a court application. Now, very helpfully, um, the most senior judge in our family courts, the president of the family division, put out guidance very promptly, I think the day after lockdown started last year, about all of this. Um, And that, that guidance remains in place. And what he says in terms is that where parents don't agree to vary the child arrangements, but one parent is still sufficiently concerned that complying with arrangements would be against current advice, then that parent can unilaterally decide to vary the arrangement to one that they consider to be safe. So that that is an option to parents if they think they've got a genuine concern. But if after the event, when we get to the other side of all of this, the actions of that parent who decided unilaterally to stop the contact are questioned by the parent who was deprived of contact, then the court will have to look at things and see whether objectively it was justified for the parent to act in that way. And it may be that there are sanctions or there's a change or some sort of compensatory time at at, at that point. Now, I have to say, when all of this first started, I was showing that to my clients quite a lot and saying, look, if this is a reasonably short term issue that we've got here, then this is what we can rely on. Of course, the longer it's gone on, the less satisfactory it becomes to say to clients, look, don't worry, we can always go back to court and this will be looked at in the fullness of time. So I think looking at this or trying to look at this from both perspectives, if you're the parent who's got concerns about contact continuing, I think, you know, you need to share, explain, record any concerns you've got um, with the other parent to try and be reasonable, 
see if you can agree some alternative um, arrangements for the child. If you really can't agree anything and you're still concerned, then really as a last resort, you implement what you think is a safe alternative arrangement, but be prepared to have to justify that after the event. And certainly try to ensure that at least there's indirect contact going on, that there are FaceTimes, there are Zooms, that the child at least is seeing the other parent in some way, albeit it might be very unsatisfactory from that other parent's perspective. And then if you're the parent who's facing the obstructive parent, what sort of things you need to think about? Again, try to understand, get to the bottom of the concerns being expressed. Um, Matt's touched upon this, but sometimes it can be things as simple as giving reassurances about how the children are physically being moved from home to home so that they stay safe. Um, maintaining social distancing whilst outside the home, um, you know, re regular hand sanitizer, who are the kids coming into contact with when they're in the other parents' care, et cetera, et cetera. So we've said this already, this really isn't a time to be secretive. Just try and be open about what the arrangements are. And if you are that parent facing the obstructive parent and you really can't reach agreement, then, as I said, try to ensure at least that you are still seeing the children or spending some time with them, even if it's indirectly. I have lots of parents, understandably, in that situation say to me, well, I'm not prepared just to accept what he or she is imposing, so I won't see the children at all. Well, that's the worst thing you can do. You know, you really need to keep the time going until you can either agree something different or until a judge or indeed an arbitrator can look at it. So, again, in a rather long winded way, those are the sort of tips, I think, Matt, that, that we'd be giving to our clients at the moment. Yeah, as, as foreshadowed, I agree, Joe. I mean, you know, it's really difficult. Situations arise. I can think of one where we're acting for a father. He's got supervised contact because of historic issues. Mother's a key worker. You know, grandmother was supervising, but she's got health issues. So we had to get an independent social worker to help supervise. You know, 46%, I think, of contact centres are open at the moment. And the grandmother can't supervise anymore because because of her health issues. So what, what do you do? You know, it's very difficult. The mother says, well, in that case, I'm not going to promote contact. What do you do as a father in those circumstances, you know, to get contact with your children? If it's on a supervised basis, you have to try and agree somebody else who can act as supervisor. Um, but if the mother won't agree, then what options do you have but to go to court? So sometimes court is the only solution, but it's really difficult to access the court system at the moment. Mm. Um, sometimes going to a lawyer, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of Joe's letters, but um, she writes a mean letter. And I don't mean mean in the <laughs> no, sense of mean, I, I, I just mean a really no, no, good no. letter. Um, sometimes one of Joe's letters might do the trick for you. Actually, that's where lawyers can help. You know, we're so not just a lawyer's a lawyer's letter that that clarifies that there is an understanding of the situation that's going on, but there are also uh, established rules and and new rules uh, at, at play. That's right. Sort of thing. Right, setting out the framework. Hmm. You know, some options that might be possible, so that the spirit of what the arrangements were before can be complied with, and ultimately, you know. It might tee you up to make an application to the court, might help uh, in due course, or once all this is hopefully over at some point, it will at least create a bit of a paper trail for you to rely on down the line to explain why your ex was yeah. unreasonable in not promoting contact. So, you know, I don't want to promote lawyers. I don't think we're really here to promote lawyers. Um, but I think sometimes a, a strongly worded lawyer's letter can help. 
I really do. But it, it, it can, but to give the contrary view, sometimes that can just rub salt into the wound. And so one has to take it very much on a case-by-case basis and be able to identify those situations where actually it's going to exacerbate rather than assist. So yeah. that's, that's right. Sometimes that, that helps to move things forward, sometimes not. And the reality, Marcus, if I'm being 100% honest, quite often in the current situation, we have to say to our clients and say to people, there may not be a right answer. Because we're working through unprecedented times, an unprecedented situation where we've got existing orders or parenting plans in place. They didn't predict we'd be in a global pandemic um, and that arrangements would be would be thrown into disarray. One of the areas that that particularly has come into sharp focus, and we're going to come on to this, I know, is, is the issue of homeschooling. Uh, which has been probably the biggest source of discord on my cases, certainly in in the last 11 months. It's proven really difficult for people. Yeah, not least because those of us who are trying to assist in homeschooling have realised that not only has the curriculum changed, our children know a good deal more than we do. (laughs) (laughs) Hugely problematic. So, Have you had to get to grips with modern metrics you still using imperial measures? Uh, mercifully Matt my children are old enough that uh, they spend the time going dad you know you do write for a living you should probably do some work now (laughs) so it's fine they're they're the girls I think just to recap on what we've uh, some of what we've said so far the screaming headline is these are difficult times but put your children first Yes. This is really, really tough for kids. Put your children first. That's always true, but under these circumstances. And then it feels to me worth repeating, Joe, that what you were saying about the fact that, yes, the family courts are very, very stretched. So having put your kids first, hopefully you don't need to rely on the family courts. But if you are facing these problems, don't be shy about seeking help from your lawyer and from the family courts, should you need Absolutely to. right. I, I don't want people to think that the family court is closed and there are um, appropriate cases where the, the court's intervention is needed. Also have to give a shout out to all the professionals who work in the family court. So the independent social workers, uh, mm. the court-based social workers, CAFCAS, who again are working their socks off, but they are very, very overburdened at the moment. And rightly, I mean, it's a sad theme, but what we've also seen in the family courts, unfortunately, much higher incidence in the last year of child abuse cases, um, which rightly are given the highest priority by the family court. So Mm. they will get the time above the parents who are just arguing over, you know, the odd hour here and there. I think most listeners would acknowledge that that's that's got to be right. Can I very cheekily, I'm going to jump in. There's another resource for parents, which I would like to mention, actually, for those listening, Mm. not only because I contributed to it, I I hasten to add, um, but very early on Mm. in the pandemic, um, there are there's a charity, Only Mums, Only Dads, who work obviously with parents of both sexes um, who published a book um, early last summer actually called separating and parenting through the covid pandemic key questions answered it's 8.99 it really does answer pretty much every question that we could all think of that even three or four months into the crisis we were getting asked about and i would really encourage anybody who's listening to this who's grappling with these issues it's it's an investment worth making it's really really give useful. us that title again joe so please. it's called separating and parenting through the covid pandemic key questions answered i think it's published by bath publishing okay. and it's uh, written by only mums only dads Lots of lawyers, including myself, have contributed to it, family therapists, lots of people who work with separating families. Okay, good. There's also the point as well that there are some FAQs on our Forster's website. I don't know if anyone 
is interesting. Of course, they, of course they are, Matt. I hope they are at this stage. <laughs> People can't see us, but Joe's looking at jo- me. Joe's glaring at Matt, yeah. nodding at him. <laughs> Breaking good. Rethinking separation and divorce. Brought to you by Forsters. Um, let's just uh, focus in a bit more on homeschooling. So uh, very often uh, there's an arrangement where there's a primary carer who has the kids more of the time. Is it automatically their responsibility to be sort of in charge of homeschooling? How's that breaking down for people? So, as I say, it's been a real source of conflict. I'm not going to say it's been conflict in every case because a lot of parents, of course, have just cracked on with it and they've been able to resolve things. Um, And I found it quite surprising. You would imagine the conflict is over, no, you do the homeschooling. No, you do it. But actually, it's the reverse. It's arguing over who is going to be doing the homeschooling where both parents want to do it. So the fundamental difficulty here is... Again, there is no hard and fast rule. If parents have got um, a child arrangements order or a parenting plan in place, which says that one parent will pick up little Jimmy from school at three o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon and have them overnight, does that mean that parent who's collecting them gets the day which precedes that and does the homeschooling that day or the next day? So the way that I've been advising clients, rightly or wrongly, is where they do have arrangements in place where that the kid spends time with both parents midweek, that the day which precedes the night they're spending with that parent, that that parent will do the homeschooling that day. So it's a very convoluted way of saying, no, it's not just about who's the primary carer. It's about trying to share it. Now, again, that, that's not a hard and fast rule because, you know, in certain situations, you might have a parent who works full time and a parent who doesn't work at all. So it may well be logical um, for the parent who doesn't work to be the one doing the homeschooling. Um, what is really, mm. really important, though, and what I'm bound to say hasn't always happened in some of the cases I've seen, is communication between the parents, because it's absolutely fine for the child to be passing back and forth in that way, ensuring they're set up for homeschooling in each of their households. But if if the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing and vice versa, Um, it's not going to be very good for the child's education. So, again, communication is really key around all of this. Hmm. I'd only add two points. One is just that if you've got a child arrangements order, then you've got an obligation to comply with the spirit of the order. So if the spirit of the order would imply that one parent should be doing the homeschooling, then that's really what ought to be happening. Um, The second point is the legal position, which is that Strictly speaking, education has always traditionally been an aspect of parental responsibility that parents have to agree on jointly. Um, And if they have a disagreement, then, you know, one or other party would have to bring it to the attention of the court. Obviously, that's not realistic at the moment, but it just emphasises the importance of parents agreeing um, how to deal with homeschooling best they can. And if there's an order that doesn't quite work, then they have to try and adapt it to, to meet the spirit of the order. And I suppose fairly likely that there may be disagreements about the safety of children returning to school when that is Very allowed. much so. And obviously at the moment, as things stand, um, may well change again. But I think in England, the plan is return to school um, no earlier than the 8th of March in Scotland, the 22nd of February, I think it is. And it was certainly an issue we envisaged last September when the kids were going back to school after a long period off. Um 
I didn't, in, in my cases, have that many disagreements about this issue last time round, but I certainly heard of plenty of other lawyers who were experiencing this. Um, and again, really, this is about talking to each other. So much of this is um, trying to involve the school, although, frankly, the schools have got much, much better things to do at the moment than try to referee where there are disagreements. To think about, are there any particular sensitivities? Are there health issues in either household or with the child, which may dictate, actually, maybe we should just hold back and review it on a week by week basis but typically if the rules and the guidance are saying it's safe for children to go back to school um, and your your child's particular school year is going back then the expectation would be that the child would return I mean one of the other things in fact the bigger issue for me I'd, I'd go so far as to say last year was in some schools I think particularly some of the private schools um, after the long gap that there had been up to July some of the private schools were offering schooling during the course of the summer holidays. Now, that was a source of disagreement between some of my clients because they'd already divvied up um, holiday time. In certain instances, it seems like a long time ago, you know, they planned to fly away somewhere when we still could fly away somewhere. And so they had to just try to, again, muddle through. And my advice then was, look, divvy up the weeks in question. I think it's the first two or three weeks of the summer holidays. So if, if one of you wants to send the children during your half of that time, but the other one doesn't, that's a matter for you. So all sorts of things, obviously, things that will constantly evolve yeah. again. What about someone who's travelled with or without their kids but won't say where they've been? And this, believe it or not, has been an issue, I think, in a few of our cases over the last few months. And it, mm. it's jolly difficult is the short answer, because at the end of the day, if you've got a parent who's travelling on their own without the children, um, the parent who is left behind looking after the children is entitled to know for the children's sake, where that yeah. parent has been. Now, we have actually, it seems as though we're already building up case law around the, these issues which are arising. There was a fairly recent case, wasn't there, Matt, where a judge was asked to, to look at similar issues. Um, and the judge made very clear in that case that because the government guidance is that the returning parent would have to self-isolate, and that it's important to avoid as much contact with other people as possible in your home, um, and the guidance doesn't actually address a child visiting a parent who's required to self in to self-isolate then the starting point really is that because it's in a child's best interests to be protected from infection it will be within the rights of the parent who's stayed behind at home to say well look if i'm not satisfied that you haven't been to somewhere that doesn't require self-isolation on your return i'm going to breach the order i'm not mandated to return the children to you and i'm going to ensure that they're safe in my home so that certainly has happened i think on some of our cases um I mean, the other aspect to all of that is just just ensuring to say that, that the child's safety, the safety of, of the parents as well um, in both households. Um, and practically speaking, if you've got a parent who's self-isolating, they would have to stay fairly distant from the children, even if they were in their home. So how is that going to be in a child's best interests? So it's quite a, it's quite a complex area. It's quite an interesting area. But the view that we formed on our cases was actually the child, the children should stay with the parent who stayed at home in those circumstances. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, we see echoes of um, of that with with the case law now that's emerging on vaccinations as well. You know, the courts are you know, traditionally used to looking at what's in the best interests of this particular child or these children and focusing squarely on that. But we're seeing much more of a public policy angle and balancing public policy against the best interests of children in the particular case. Um, so, yeah, I agree with everything that Joe mm. said. 
Of course, Marcus, all of this depends on agreement or not. So if parents decide to exercise their parental responsibility jointly in a different way and they agree something to the contrary, that's absolutely a matter for them and for them deciding what's safe, what's right mm. for their child. These issues only engage where there's disagreement, of course, and where one parent is contesting all of yeah. this. And that's where, on occasion, the courts do have to get involved at fairly short notice. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of parents who live overseas who in normal times would fly back and see their children or their children would come out and see them. What are the options open to people trying to parent a child from another country at the moment? That must be very challenging. It's been one of the more, I'd say, one of the more challenging aspects of COVID for me and trying to help separated parents navigate their way through all of this. Because the short answer, as we all know, is that you're bound by the regulations, first of all, about whether you can leave home at all in the country in which you live. Then about whether travelling for the purposes of contact overseas is a reasonable excuse for you to leave your home. And then Thirdly, what are the regulations in force in the country in which the child lives, which may include, uh, you know, the need to quarantine on arrival, which we've seen increasingly here of late. So it's becoming increasingly impractical to travel from country to country for regular contact with children. It's not going to be practical to do weekend contact every weekend, for example. Um, And I think less frequent contact for longer chunks will be more likely But again, there'll be practical questions around that, especially with the possible need to quarantine for 14 days on arrival here and then to quarantine when you return back home as well. So, again, this works better where you've got a cooperative parenting relationship, as with so much of all of this, where you can finesse the arrangements. And as a very, very worst case scenario, and I've seen this in cases it might just be impossible to have the direct face-to-face contact at this particular juncture. And we become very reliant on Zoom, on FaceTime, and just ensuring that the children at least are having that sort of contact. Yeah, and obviously we know that that's much easier when you've got slightly older children, but you've got very young children. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to engage them on indirect contact, you know, such as Zoom and FaceTime. Yeah. It's very easy for a, for a difficult parent to disrupt a relationship between the other parent and the child, if it's a relationship that's being sustained over, you know, FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. Mm. That, I mean, obviously, again, kudos to you and your former spouse. But if you if you've got a situation where somebody is wanting to be difficult, it's not difficult to just cajole the child away from the screen, and we see that so often, and it's so it's so demoralising. Yeah. And damaging for the kid, you know, it's maybe a couple of satisfying cheap points can be scored, but it's really damaging for the child. It's so damaging. Yeah. It's so damaging. And makes all future arrangements more complicated, more difficult, because it means you go into every contact with resentment. Right. And people are going to remember what happened over this period, aren't they? Breaking good. Rethinking separation and divorce. Brought to you by Forsters. There's no one whose circumstances haven't changed, that's for sure. Some people are working more, some people are working less, some people uh, maybe have realised actually that they don't want to work in the same way that they used to because they're learning new things. So those changes and others mean after the pandemic uh, that people might want to look at changing the arrangements that they had established beforehand. Can they do that? How might they sensibly go about doing that? This is, I think, for me, the really big issue 
where parents have agreed different arrangements during lockdown, are we going to find more parents trying to then use those arrangements to say, well, there should be a new status quo after lockdown is finished? You know, the arrangements should change. There's also the big issue as well. People are obviously recalibrating their approach to life and where they want to be and their garden and having space for a dog and lots of people moving out of uh right of of cities moving out to the countryside Mm. and realizing they don't need necessarily to go into work all the time right and you've got to balance that desire of a parent to want to spend more time with their family quite often against the desire of the other parent not to lose out on time with their child or with their children so we're we're going to see lots of internal we're starting to see it already Um, internal relocation cases on a simple structural level matt do you need if you want for example to move house move out of the city do you need your ex's permission to do that if you're co-parenting you don't need permission to move house um you know you can move so long as it doesn't impact on the child arrangements or child arrangements order that you've got or doesn't impact on the children's ability to go to school in the schools that they're in then you can move but if yeah. if your move would impact on, you know, the the enjoyment of the children of contact, in accordance with what you've got set up at the moment, or if it would necessitate a, a change of schools, mm. then you you need the permission of the other parent absolutely, and you know people should not use this period to try and effectively um, relocate themselves unilaterally. We're seeing that a little bit. Yeah, we are. And I think it is a common misconception. People assume, I think particularly where they're the primary carer of a child or children, that they can just decide where they want to live and that's it. And they're quite surprised when they're then advised, no, you need both to agree to this, even a move within England, within the UK. Um, So it is becoming increasingly common. There are more and more people, particularly those city dwellers who decided they do want that that green space. Having been through all of this, they want that nice area to, to live in with their children. Um, And so they would have to discuss that and try and agree that with the other parent. If they couldn't agree and that necessitated an application to court, I mean, there are all sorts of things the court will then take into account. So it will look at what on the one hand will be the impact on the disappointed parent if if she, let's call it she, but, you know, it doesn't have to be she, Mm. if she was prevented from moving, what will be the impact on the parent left behind if the move did happen, if it were permitted to happen? Um, are there any middle grounds that can be looked at? So sometimes if I'm mediating in particular and looking at these cases, can both parents move? Um, or is there somewhere that's halfway between where one parent wants to live and where the other parent will be living that, that could be uh, suitable? What about a move not now, but agreed future date, for example, which might dovetail with children's exams? Um, a really important strand in all of this is what will be the impact of parent left behind on their relationship with the child um, if there were to be a move so it's really incumbent on the person wanting to move to present a very compelling plan not just as to what schooling and medical issues might look like um, but also what what could contact look like how could it work how would we try to make up any time that might be lost so that might be more focus on weekend time it might be more holiday time with the left behind parents so 
they're certainly not um, they're not slam dunk cases. And as with all of these things, the court would approach them from the perspective what ultimately is in the child's best welfare interests. But I've certainly seen a lot more of these inquiries, I'd say, over the past six months as people have started to think about things more closely. And I don't doubt we'll see a lot more. And I hope that people will try to discuss them, will try to reach agreements, may go to mediation about them. But if not, I fear we'll see quite a few of them coming into the family court. Yeah, it seems likely, doesn't it, that after we return to whatever the new normal looks like and all the rest of it, that there will be quite a lot of people realising mm. they don't they're not tied to the city house that they had and can move. It's good. Well, Marcus, as well, that the, the the related point to that is that if we find that as a result of all this, there are going to be more people working from home. Are we going to find that there's going to be more and more cases where people are sharing care pretty much equally? After all. If you're working from home and you can accommodate it, then why not? You know, there has already been in recent years a movement towards more shared care, more sharing of parental responsibility. Mm. And I do wonder whether we're going to see an influx of situations mm. where people think, well, I can work from home now, so why not? Yeah, I mean, our own circumstance in uh, in our family is exactly that, that we've gone from what was about a two-thirds, one-third uh, share is now 50-50 because that's just where things are. It seems to make sense at the moment and who who knows what will happen mm. afterwards. And of course, the, the other angle to all of this is sadly there are people who have been longer term affected economically in terms of job losses um, who might be in industries where unfortunately it is longer term impact. They may not get jobs back as quickly as they would hope. And so that may mean that genuinely their circumstances have changed so that they are able to spend more time with the children. So we go back to the previous question about that and status quo. But if it's looking like that's going to be a reasonably longer term state of affairs, it may well be appropriate to sit down again and say, well, look, there aren't many silver linings to this pandemic. But if one of them is that you get to spend more time with your children because you've got that time available to you, then that clearly is something that should be looked at again, ideally in mediation through discussion, but if not, which the family court may be prepared to endorse. That may, I presume, also uh, lead to rethinking financial arrangements if you've not been an equal carer um, for your kids and a, you know, one party's paying to the other. Um, that could easily change as well, couldn't it? It, it? it could well, and certainly in terms of child maintenance, um, that is directly affected by the amount of time that a child or children spend with, with each parent. Now, again, I'm sounding slightly cynical. There are some parents who sometimes that the impression I get is they want to manipulate the child arrangements for precisely that reason. But one has to look at the child arrangements through the perspective of what genuinely objectively is in the best interests of your child or children, and then work through what mm. the implications on child maintenance would actually be. Is there anything that's changed in terms of the divorce and separation process because of COVID that you think is a better way of doing things? I mean, I feel like we have touched on a, a few ways already, but what would you say to that? I think that the main thing, the main positive which has come out of the pandemic is the fact that we've been forced kicking and screaming to do very much more online. Um, so more and more applications now are capable of being issued online. More divorce petitions are being issued online than ever before. Uh, the remote hearings that, that we've spoken about in earlier podcast episodes, which 
by and large, I think, extremely well. So although focusing on children issues in particular, I'm finding that now more than ever that the wait times for, for court time is, is ever longer, even relative to last March when this all started, it's noticeably mm. longer. It's functioning, it's working. And ideally what we need to start doing now is start triaging more cases at an early stage. So if they can be sorted out, that happens. And it's only those cases that really need judicial input that they then get the, 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 the full on hearings. But I think certainly for me, doing the hearings um, online has, has been a revelation, actually. I think I've made the point before, I'm interested to see more and understand more about the parents' perspective, the client's perspective, because I think lawyers have loved it. It's not so satisfactory for the lay client trying to follow a court process done over video link rather than face to face. So I anticipate that going forward, it will be a hybrid approach. Certain hearings will be done in this way. Others will continue to be face to face rightly. But I think that that side of things actually for me, Matt, I don't know whether you agree, has worked quite positively. I mean, it's worked positively in the way that it's been set up. But I've had so many experiences during lockdown where a barrister or a client has lost their Wi-Fi and you've got so much cost and effort that's gone into this hearing and then you've got a Wi-Fi issue that just cuts it all out and, you know, trying to frantically take instructions over WhatsApp. You're not in the same place. You can't have negotiations in the corridor. I think that we are going to end up with a system that incorporates more remote hearings, definitely, no doubt about it. We're going to have to have that kind of system in order to bring the waiting list down. Mm. But I don't see for important hearings that the default setting should be, the hearings should be remote. I don't think that's what people want. I think people want actual access to the justice system. By that, I mean they want to be at court so that they can actually get things done with physical people. Um, and they don't want to run the risk of having their Wi-Fi connection mean that they've thrown away thousands of pounds in costs. Mm. So I, I think... That would be my response to that. In terms of a positive that might come out of it, I think going back to where we started, really, um, a big, perhaps the big positive for me is that this whole situation has forced many parents who couldn't communicate with each other very well before to communicate with each other. They just have to because somebody needs to know what homework's been done. Somebody mm. needs to know, you know, details of what's going on at home. So I do think that some families in terms of future co-parenting will have benefited, um, <laughs> albeit not wanting the situation to be the case. They will have benefited sure. from lockdown, but there will be many more families who will have struggled. Yeah. And do remember, people listening, there are lots of resources to help you, uh, including re-listening to this episode. Uh, but there's the book that Joe mentioned. There's the FAQs on the Forster's website. And there's the government advice, all of which are accessible. And that is all the time we've got for today. I've been Marcus Brigstock. Huge thanks, of course, to Joe Edwards and Matt Brunson-Tully and to our producer, Sophie Black, who can unscramble and edit out my political agenda if she wishes. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions or thoughts, email us at family at uk or tweet us at Forster's Family and we will try our best to answer them if we can. Till then, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.